0: Plates there if you want. There's plates in the thing right here. Oh, right. right in
1: front of my face. You yeah. Can.
0: Okay, good evening everybody and welcome to class number four, the final class of the season, or of this episode, what do you when want to call it? <laughs> and the one that gets a test gets Can't an extra latka. Okay, you have testitis. What, what
2: page?
0: We are going to be starting today on page, lesson number four is on page 116. So, today's class is entitled The Change of Heart, and how we're going to learn to really outsmart anti-Semitism, not only the anti-Semitism around us, not only anti-Semitism of the haters, but also maybe finding a little bit of the anti-Semitism within us, to be able to outsmart it and to stand up against it, and we're going to look at all different, whether you want to look at it modern day incidents or age old incidents that will help us. To navigate this uh, challenging path. In the public arena we encounter some people in very powerful positions whether it's commerce, media, politics, who take positions and rhetoric which are sometimes we, we, let's call it simple, uh, we find offensive. And not only do we find it offensive but they potentially do harm, not only because, we're not talking about people that necessarily, uh, of course those that publicly give comments about their disdain about Jewish people, we're not talking about people who are openly and clearly anti Semitical, but even people who, so to speak, under the cuff or they allow room for rhetoric which can cause um, upheaval, hate, they don't claim to be anti-Semites, There are people that can call themselves from the polite society, but yet they do things, or they refrain from saying or doing things, which because of that, they undermine the Jewish interest. It could be a government official who is soft on responding to a local anti-Semitic incident. I always found it very fascinating that especially during an election year, it was always the opponent was able to find that the other guy had some anti-Semitic incident that he did. Even though there was something happening brewing in his own campaign, his own backyard, but the other guy was always the anti-Semite and we got to call him out on it. I remember this was uh, going back probably about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, a guy came here. uh, They were running for, I think it was assemblyman or something like that. And the guy, he accused the guy the, uh, his opponent from saying something or associating with the Nazis or whatever it was. And he came to me to tell me, look what an anti semite the other guy is. I says, but the guy he said was just here ignorance, not anti-Semitic. You know, sometimes you have to do... But all of a sudden, the other guy was the anti-Semitic, even though this guy's own uncle or something was, uh, was doing other stuff. Well, but, but we find, what we find over here is that we have many times politicians, journalists, you name it, Different people find different platforms. They're just the regular people who they don't want to call themselves officially an anti-Semite. But they're very condoning of maybe Louis Farrakhan and other type of people. Maybe it's a university president who doesn't want to... We had incidents over here, even in Miller Place High School. I remember that there was a kid who was um, had some other kid put some uh, st- swastika and quickly the principal washed it away so there shouldn't be an incident or we shouldn't they be called upon it and such type of things. So they don't call themselves anti-Semites, but they want to be able to, so to speak, stay out of politics or um, different infringement and all in the name of calling peace and equality, whatever it is, they're going to be moving um, or doing and condoning things which are anti-Semitical. All right. It's only only Jews, Jews. right? And I'm sure we've seen it, and I'm sure if I tell you in journalism, you'll be able to name a person, or in entertainment, you'll be able to name a person, or a politician, or anything of that sort. I'm sure in academia, in every sort of type of thing, there's always people where um, come up with those opinions. And what is it that shapes their attitude? What is it that all of a sudden gives them these policies that they make that can have an impact on Jews? And therefore, I think it's very important that when we discuss this, we have to know how to deal with such type of people in their efforts to be able to outsmart their idea of their subtle, if you want to call it, anti-Semitic undertones. And to be able to understand this, I think we can take a case in point. A case in point of recent, recent meaning in the 1960s, 70s, where we've seen politicians do certain things and how they were approached, what it accomplished, what it could have accomplished and what we can learn from it. And our case in point, is we're going to talk about in the 1950s and 60s, France was a primary supplier of Israeli weapons to the Israeli Air Force, especially. Then Israel was having some issues getting, especially military stuff, and they were getting subpar stuff from France. And at the time, Israel had ordered and paid for already 50, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, what kind of jets? Myrage, M- Mirage? Mirage? There yeah. you go, Mirage jets. <laughs> and Mirage fighter jets from France. However, just before the outbreak of the hostilities in 1967, President, I'm not going to pronounce his name right either, Dagoule, right? I think that's how it's pronounced, of France? the goal. there you go. There you go. There you go. He had the goal to do it, and he placed an embargo. <laughs> He placed an embargo against selling military equipment to both sides. Now of course when you say to both sides, the Arabs were getting their military stuff from Russia. So it really didn't make a difference that you were going to make an embargo and not sell to the Arabs. So who was he really hurting? He was really hurting the French. Observers of all sides said that the reason was because at that time France was having a problem with Algeria. And Algeria was a very big Muslim country in order to buy favor in the eyes of the Arabs. What did he say? I'm making an embargo officially on both sides. I'm not selling. And of course, who was it harming? It was harming, of course. And because of that, even the already purchased Mirage, did I say that right? Mirage jets, they were canceled. And over here, this was continuing. And if this wasn't bad enough... Things only got worse in 1970 after the or during the War of Attrition when President Georges Pompidou Pompidou, did I say a good? Announced a friend that France would not only not sell to Arabs but they started selling to Libya. Now Libya at that time were sworn enemies against the Jewish people against the state of Israel and even as the arms continued to embargo and continued against Israel he was selling to Libya. And here's what happened. Text number one. Page 116. After much hesitation, French officials acknowledged tonight that about 50 Mirage jet fighters planes would be sold to Libya. The confirmation of the sale was expected to provoke sharp protests from Israel. The Israelis suspect that the planes will sooner or later find their ways into fighting fronts. The French defense minister reaffirmed the French embargo policy of selling no arms to countries directly in conflict, Israel, the United Arab Republic, Jordan, and Syria. And said they were convinced that Libya sought to supply their own forces. So we see over here, of course, even though it was going to end up in the, against, uh, fighting against the Israelis. Yeah. Gaddafi was yeah. at the. Yeah, of course, yeah. He only killed, you know, like thousands of people. Yeah. Israeli fears of the Libyan mirage is based on the conviction shared by some French expert that the Libyan Air Force, in its present state, the thing was that the Libyans didn't even know how to fly planes. In its present they cannot absorb such a number of highly advanced planes. The fear is compounded by the aggressive stance taken towards Israel by the new revolutionary military regime, which has been in power by Libya since early September. The planes were sold to Libya, is believed to be the Mirage III, the same type as the 50 built for Israel, but placed under embargo in 1967. The Israelis are expected to find particularly galling the fact that they have been denied about the same number of planes are made available to the hostile Arab country. Now imagine, back in 1970, you see open, clear, direct anti-Semitism. They're supporting the Arabs, not the Israelis. To make the question even sharper, in 1970, after he announced that he is selling the planes to Libya, a few weeks later, President Pompidou was about to make a visit to the United States. What should the American Jews do in this situation? We're in America. We have the right to protest. We have the right to say, what should we do? Here's a clear anti-Semite. He's not hiding. He's not getting involved. That's officially that's the outside. He's not saying clearly he's an anti-Semite. But you see he's taking 50 planes that were intended to go to Israel. And he's giving it to the enemy. What we as American Jews, that 1970s, coming to visit at the time the president, what should the American Jews at the time do? We're going to get back at the end of our class what they actually did, and if it worked or it didn't, and we'll analyze it. But first, let's see what the Torah has to say about it. So whenever we seek at any Jewish perspective, whenever we come to a crossroad of a question, especially of a belief such strong as anti-Semitism, the first thing we look to, as we've seen in the previous classes, we look to the Torah for guidance. And what did our ancestors in history do when they encountered anti-Semites? How did they deal with anti-Semites? And just a few weeks ago in the Torah, I think it was two weeks ago, we read about Yaakov and Esau. And we can probably call Esau the greatest anti-Semite or the person that Yaakov was most afraid of at the time. Yaakov and Esau were twin brothers brought up together in the same home. But at the age of 13, 14, 15, they all of a sudden became polar opposites. Yaakov became the studious one studying in Torah all day while Yisav becomes the hunter, going in the field, waging war against others. The Torah tells us that Yisav wanted to kill his brother because he felt that his brother stole from him the blessings that he should have gotten from his father. His mother and his father decided that he should go away for a while and stay by his uncle Laban. And after 20 years, Jacob starts returning and coming back to his homeland. And he sends messengers to see what his brother is up to. And the message comes back and guess what? Your brother's so excited to see you. He is coming with an entourage of 400 men. And according to some, 400 men with 400 generals with 400 men coming to greet you. And he wasn't coming to say happy birthday. Let's just say that. He was coming and he was afraid for his life. What does he do now? Jacob is afraid of his life. He's afraid over here this person that hates him. What's he going to do? How's he going to face this predicament? And the Torah tells us that over here, that Yaakov, as you can expect, number one, prayed to God. Number two, prepared himself for war. He separated his family into camps. And number three, he sent gifts and presents to Asaph. Es- to the Midrash tells us of Uriah, you see in text number two, three steps that he took. Jacob prepared himself a three-pronged response, a prayer, a gift, and an armed struggle. What was the purpose of the gift? The Torah tells us the practical concept of the gift of what he gave was many sheep, many donkeys, many goats, servants, maidservants. But look how he did it. He also scattered them. He sent one group. Then he sent another group. Then he sent another group. Then he sent another group. And each one came with a message. He said, my dear brother Asaph, this is a gift from your servant, Jacob. And he sent multiple different messengers, so he should feel like he's getting it. Because if he would send it all at once... Just one gift. But if he's, today he gets one gift, you know, like you schedule your Amazon packages for every single day to make believe you're getting something in the mail and then you return it the next week. So, the same idea. He was doing all the different gifts he would send. One day he would get in one package and it would say, this is from your servant Jacob. The next day, another one. So like this, he felt he was continuously getting gifts. And each one of them he was saying delicately, this is you, this is from your servant Jacob. Now, Yaakov was less than likely... Thrilled about the fact that he had to deal so delicately with his brother Asaph, the guy that wants to kill him. It probably bothered him by the fact that people might misinterpret the saying, he's a weakling. Stand up to your brother. No, he has 400 men. You also got a family of 12 sons. They're pretty strong. Why didn't you fight him? Call him for what he is. Call him a hater. He wants to kill you. But Yaakov had to realize and recognize that the way that he was going to overcome Asav was not with his own power, was with God's power. And the only reason why he was sending the gift was in order to be able to make a vessel, so to speak, for the blessing of God to come. So therefore, he didn't feel an inferior complex. On the contrary, he felt the most confident that he had God's power with him, and the way he was going to counter Asav was by appeasing him, by sending him these gifts. Well, was it effective? So the Torah tells us, text number three. Esau ran towards Jacob and embraced him, and fell on Jacob's neck and kissed him, and they wept. This elaborate, this elaborate gift that he gave, this heart-rendering, touching way of speaking, saying, your servant Jacob, may have worked, because what does the Torah tell us? That they ran to each other, he saw him, he embraced him, he hugged him, and not only did he hug him, but he kissed him. But here's a little interesting thing. If you look in the words Keyu in the Torah, they have little dots on top on the words that he kissed him. What does it mean? Why are there dots? Whenever there are dots on the top of a word in the Torah, that means there's a deeper meaning here. What is the deeper meaning to the words and he kissed him? So over here, text number four, the medrash tells us as follows: page 120. The Torah features dots over the words and he kissed him. This is because Esau did not kiss Jacob wholeheartedly. This is be- Rabbi Shimon Bar Yachai says it's an established fact that Esau hates Jacob. Nevertheless, his compassion was moved at the time and he kissed him wholeheartedly. On one hand over here, you see, on one hand over here, we see that Esau's behavior before the hug and the kiss wanted to kill him. But at the same time, you would say that therefore when he kissed him, he probably didn't mean it wholeheartedly. But Rabbi Shimon bar Yachai comes along and says, maybe he wanted to kill him beforehand. And maybe he wanted to kill him afterwards. But he got him at a moment of softness. And he kissed him wholeheartedly. Like two brothers that haven't met in a long time. You know, the human emotions are very complicated, as we'll soon see. Even haters don't want to be called haters. Even people that walk around the whole day only preaching hate, they themselves don't want to be called labeled as a hater. So if you can tap in to, so to speak, to find a little bit of where their soft spot is, you can change them. And that's exactly what Yaakov did. He didn't turn him into an ally, even though, yes, Esau asked Yaakov, why don't you come along with me? But Yaakov Uh, politely declined but over here Yaakov said did something he so to speak made himself subservient if you want to call it to Esau appeased him and because of that temporarily he kissed him whether he meant it or not is a different story you know they say about a politician who was trying to get some votes he's going to all the remote areas to be able to see to collect all the votes to get people to vote for him so he comes to this remote town and he goes over to the mayor and he says, No, I'm here to help you. Tell me what I can do. So the mayor says, We got two problems. So he's a politician. Says, Go along. Okay, tell me problem number one. He says, Problem number one, we don't have a doctor in town. He says, Oh, that's a terrible problem. He takes out his phone, makes a call. He says, Oh, everything arranged. He hangs up the phone and says, Arranged. All taken care of. The mayor looks at him and says, Problem number two is we don't have cell service here. <laughs> each person we could say whether he, mean, he meant that he didn't mean it but the bottom line is Asaph went his way Yaakov went his way and we're here today to tell the tale he survives not only survived yet Jacob continued to thrive so no matter what Asaph's feeling was whether he said oh boy I want to get him one day regardless the objective was accomplished throughout history the Jewish people have assumed that this reason that's recorded in the Torah was not just a story about the past, was a story that teaches us a lesson for every day and every age, and how we deal with these problematic Gentiles or anti-Semites of any age. The Talmud tells us an interesting story. Text number five. The Medrash relates that when Rabbi Yanai would set out for a meeting with the Roman government, he would read first a passage in the Torah regarding Jacob and Esau. The sages had a tradition that this passage was a guide for our exile. Therefore, Rabbi Yane would visit the rulers of Rome for communal issues. He would consult this passage to follow this advice of the wise Jacob. It is indeed appropriate for all generations to study this approach and adopt this in actual practice. The Talmud goes even a little deeper. That doesn't mention in this paragraph over here. Rabbi Yanei had a very interesting thing, that whenever he would go and meet the Roman officials, because they were making constantly decrees on the Jewish people, Rabbi Yanei was a student of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, who was the author of the Mishnah, was right after the destruction of the Second Temple. So the Jewish people were under the Roman rule and constantly new decrees were coming out. And he would continuously meet with the Roman officials. So to be able to find favor in their eyes to so to speak lobby for Jewish interests. And before he would go meet them every single time he would study the Torah reading of Jacob and Esau. Not only study it but internalize it. Make sure then understand that when he is going he is doing it as a mission to be able to follow this type of method that Jacob taught the Jewish people. One time the Talmud tells us that he went and he just skimmed through it. He didn't internalize, so to speak, the message. And what happened was, the interesting thing was, Rabbi Yannay, every time he went to meet the Roman officials, they would always offer him like a guard to take him back home. Like to, And he always remembered, Jacob didn't take anything from Esau. I'm not taking anything from the Romans. And he never took any escort back with him. This one time that he didn't internalize the message, he forgot. And they offered him a ride back. So he says, I'll take the ride. His Uber didn't come, so he took the ride. On the way, this Roman soldier who was officially protecting him robbed him from everything that he had. And that's when he learned, he said, I always have to remember to follow the rules according to way. Jacob didn't just say it, but it was an influence for generations because everything that our sages do is not something that was for the past, but it is actually for every single day and every single age. And therefore, when... We're talking about Jacob. What Jacob tried to avoid at all costs was a war. Whether it was not was not beneficial for him, for his children, for his grandchildren, but for every generation. A war is not a benefiting thing. What we are looking at is, yes, Yaakov, did he have the ability to fight? He prepared to fight. But what was his first objective? Let me buy him off. Let me give him presents. Let me talk to the kind part of him. Let me find the sensitive, the soft part in him that I can talk to him. There are many other examples like this. We'll just take one other example. Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yechai. And why do I pick Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yechai? Because Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yechai was the same person that mentioned before, that we quoted, who said that the halacha is, meaning, it's an established fact, Esau hates Jacob. That moment, temporarily, he kissed him. Esau for generations were the Romans. The Edomites who then became the Romans and were moved around. So if we want to talk about the Jews versus the Gentiles or the anti-Semites of every time, the Romans would be a very good example. Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai himself had to go and hide in a cave for 13 years. and I'm sure you remember we celebrate Lagba Boomer. They're celebrating his anniversary of his passing. He, well, Why did he have to go hide in a cave for 13 years? Because he spoke out against the Romans. What did he say? Want to hear his terrible sin? There was a discussion amongst the rabbis who said that the Romans, wow, they built such roads. One rabbi said, yeah, they build roads because they can charge taxes. Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai said, the only reason why the Romans did it is only for their own self-aggrandizement. That was his whole sin. Somebody heard the conversation and said, what, this Rabbi Shimon said it? And they sent out to arrest him. So he knew very well that these people were not the nicest guys. He knew very well what the Romans were all about. Not only that, Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai lived in a time, he was a student of Rabbi Akiva. You remember Rabbi Akiva? How was Rabbi Akiva killed? By the Romans. When well, they raked his skin while he was holding a Torah. Tortured the Jewish people. Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai lived through the Bar Kokhba revolt, where it says that the city of Betar, there was blood flooding, flowing through the streets of, of, of Betar. He knew the Romans were evil at the core. They were terrible people. But listen to where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai took the approach. Text number 6. The Roman government once issued a decree that Jews may not observe Shabbat, circumcision, and family purity. The Jews said to themselves, we should go to Rome and solicit annulment of the decree. Let Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai go, for he has experienced the miracles. Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai was a person who continued to to go to the rulers of Judea, the rulers that were then governing the land of Israel, and petitioned that they should take away the terrible decrees that they put against the Jewish people. How did he win them over? So the Talmud just alludes to it over here, and the Talmud explains that when Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai came to Rome, he took the mission and he came there to be able to make a positive impression on the emperor, to buy him off, to get some time from him. When he came there, Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai saw that the emperor's daughter was very ill. So Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai made a miracle and healed his daughter. The emperor was so excited that he healed his daughter. He said, any decree, you can pick any gift you want. And he picked the decree and he ripped it up. And that's how we got rid of the decree. What did Rabbi Shimon bar Yechai do over here? The same Rabbi Shimon who said... It's an established fact that they hate us. He could have said, the haters will ever be haters. Give up. Why heal his daughter? Just go and fight. and Let's make a tumble and a ruckus and whatever it was. But he didn't do that. What he did was, he said, what can I look from Yaakov? What did Yaakov do? He appeased them. He found their soft spot. His daughter's not well. I'll work that avenue and we'll get what we need. Are they going to like us? They're never going to like us. It's an established fact. They hate us. But we need to be able to live. We need to be able to move on. So to be able to scream, they hate us, they hate us, they hate us, and they summit, and they summit, is that going to accomplish the fact? Absolutely not. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get that kiss, even though it's temporarily, but eventually, at least we'll get what we need. This model continued for generations, and it continued throughout most of Jewish history. In Europe, there were influential court Jews who used their connection to intercede on behalf of the Jewish brethren, and for this they were called, in Hebrew it was called shtadlonim, people who were like uh, lobbyists, if you want to call it. If just to take a little example, there was if you one of the names that everybody knows is Moses Montefiore. With his wealth, he was able to convince the English uh, government to be able to let the Jews back into England. But there were many different ones. If you look in Figure four point one, they mentioned six of them who are known as Stadlonim. You have Joseph Rosheim in Vienna, Jacob Passevery in Prague, Samuel Oppenheimer in Heidelberg, Lefman Brenz in Hanover. who was allowed them to build a cemetery. Samson Wartimer in Worms. Joseph Suss Oppenheimer and Württemberg, these were different cases throughout Europe. We're talking about in the 16th, 17th century where these people were called. They went, they were Stadlonim that they would go to uh, wage and behalf and to be able to talk to the government. Now many of them would bring very nice, uh, if you want to call it, gifts to be able to get them to, to uh, look the other way or to be able to keep them quiet one of the most famous Stadlonim of these uh, lobbyists, he was a per- fellow by the name of Josef Rosheim. You can see he's the first one in Vienna. He lived in around 1480 to 1554. He advocated on behalf of the German Jews in the court of the Roman Emperor, Maximilian I, and later on his grandson, Charles V. These two rulers, uh, anybody knowing about any history knows that they were not Jew lovers at the slightest. Just to give you a little bit, Charles V was a grandson through his mother of King Fernandez and Isabella of Spain, who they were very famous for starting the Spanish Inquisition and infamously expelled all the Jews from Spain in 1492. Yet, Yosef of Rosheim visited these courts on many occasions and he managed to procure privileges for German Jews to protect them against oppressions and even more so expulsions because every single day Year to year, Jews were expelled, whether it was from England, from Germany, from Portugal, from place to place. And to be able to get and buy some time, he was one of those very uh, famous people that worked very hard. In one of his memoirs, he put a little example of sampling of what he did. Text number seven. In 1531... The denouncers. It's not clear what the denouncers, who, who they were. He just is a memoir of his own little personal diary, so he doesn't really go into explanation of who everybody was. But he says as follows. The denouncers once again hounded the Emperor Charles V while he was in Belgium, and Holland, lands inhabit, uninhabited by Jews. Many requested that I javel to those lands to oppose the accusers. With the help of God, I was at the court of the exalted emperor, For four months, from the 1st of Adar until the 1st of Sivan, pursuing the entrance of the Jewish communities, what happened was they would go, these emperors would go to other countries who were, so to speak, cleaned of Jews, and they said, look how everything is, why do you still have Jews in your country? And he would have to go and fight that they shouldn't expel the Jews. Although Rotentheort attempted to swallow me alive, he doesn't say who this guy was. We don't know who this guy was, but someone to suggest that it was Martin Van Rossum. He was a mercenary who had several dukes in the area and was very anti-Semitic and did not allow the Jews, and he tried actually killing Yosef de Roche and uh, tried to swallow me alive and bring about my demise. God, in his great mercy, sent his messenger and saved me from his hands from all those who sought harm to me. At that time, I had an audience with the emperor in his private chamber. I spoke to him as long as I needed. He responded sympathetically. During this period, when I had free time, I was secluded to my room and authored a book entitled The Sanctified Path. So you see over here, his account is not that comprehensive, and it doesn't give us the full picture. But what we do know is that he risked his own life to go save his fellow Jews. Because Jews were not allowed to live in those regions... And the enemies were lurking everywhere to be able to see what they can do to get Jewish people out. And therefore forced him to be for four months secluded in his own quarters to the extent that he was even able to write a whole book while he was there. But it took, at one point we see, what we see from over here is, that Yosef Roshim, who was he thinking? Who was he talking to? He didn't think for a moment that the grandson of King Fernandes and Isabella, who expelled the Jews from Spain, were going to all of a sudden become Jew lovers. He didn't think they were not anti-Semites. He understood and he realized that we need to be able to get something from them. I'm not here to bestow the righteous Gentile title on them. I'm not here to make them great. I'm not here to make them kind. I don't think I'm going to change their mind. But one thing I do know is that right now the Jewish people are being oppressed by these people. And therefore, what can I do to be able to save the Jewish people in this situation? I can scream, they'll throw me out as quick as I came. So what do I need to do? I need to court them. I need to be able to appease them. Again, in the method of his grandfather, great our forefather Jacob, how to do it. Now, to be sure, the haters are haters. And it didn't always work. For example, the expulsion of Spain. For example, if you look in the picture uh, 4.2, is a picture of the Barbanel, was the expulsion of the Jews in 1492, when the Abarbanel, very well famous known, the Don Isaac Abarbanel, a wealthy Jewish scholar, who secured three separate audiences with the king, during which he and some uh, non-Jewish allies tried to persuade the king by giving him money, or whatever it may be, and offered vast sums of money to be able to take away the decree of expelling the Jews of Spain, and unfortunately it didn't work. Uh, someone is saying, and that's why this picture you see over here, he's coming officially offering money, and then somebody comes in and tells the king, what, for 30,000 uh, 30, whatever gold coins, you're going to sell your soul to the Jews, and therefore that was enough to turn the Jews against him. And that's what you have over here. This painting tells us like an interesting legend that Wali Abarbanel, or was another Jew trying to convince the king and queen, and the the infamous chief inquisitor walked in, whose name was Thomas de Torquemenda, he burst into the room and said, the Judas sold you guys out for 30 gold pieces. And that's in the painting. Officially, I think this is like the Barbanel with his back to the picture, showing how all of a sudden his diplomatic efforts unravel. So there was times that these stadlunds, if you want to call it the lobbyists, worked. And times that they were not. Because we know, and like a guy like the chief inquisitor, was a person who just wanted Jewish blood spilled in the streets. He couldn't care less of what was going on. And... He would. There's no way in, you were going to buy these people off or change their minds because they were true haters, as you want to call them amoleks. They were true people that just wanted, all they wanted to see is Jewish blood run through the streets. And such haters, there's no way of buying them off, there's no way of talking to them, and so on and so forth. But it is also true that the approach of lobbying, so to speak, was very helpful in more than one occasion. Then you want to say, what well, about the fact that the Jews look like they' were begging? Well guess what? pleading an authority makes you look feel inferior, but recognizing ultimately that you're in God's hands doesn't make you feel inferior. When Jacob was sending the gifts to Esau, when Rabbi Shimon was going to the Romans, when Yana e HaMelech, when Yana, I'm sorry when Rabbi Yana was going to the Romans, did they feel inferior? on the contrary, they felt armed with the power and the faith in God that they can overcome, the enemy, even though the enemy's a hater, even though the enemy wants to see blood spill, but they had that faith in God, so was it wasn't inferior on the contrary. They had what to sell. They had what to offer. It, do they have to come to the ruling government? Yes, they have to come to the ruling government, but with the faith of God, and that's what brought them to be able to give them the courage, the charisma, the impetus to be able to overcome in these engaging diplomatic efforts, and they were just used merely as garments to dress God's blessing in order to get it done because they felt, A, that their method was coming from the Torah, and B, that God, they had faith in God, that they would be accomplished in their mission. So while we see that Jews assume that they can gain anything, even from those that they dislike them, and we mentioned a few examples, but at the same time, what about those that just, if they hate us, what happens? Where did the hate go? Do they still hate us afterwards? Do they still hate us before? Yeah. And it's interesting that modern neuroscience has a similar discussion about this. And the discussion goes about, and I'm sure, and it actually it's brought down in a case study, and I'm sure you guys all remember it. On July 28, 2006, the actor Mel Gibson was pulled over for speeding in Malibu, California. And Gibson fail, uh, failed the breathalyzer test. And when he failed the breathalyzer test, what's the first thing he was going to be done? Was going to be arrested and cuffed. And he saw that the fellow that was uh, arresting him, he asked him, what do you, I think he asked the officer, his name was James Me. He said if he was Jewish. And then when he learned that he was Jewish, he started yelling at him all the different anti-Semitic slurs. He said Jews are responsible for all the wa- wars in the world and everything else. The news media were all over the story. Gibson, of course, later offered an apology, said he was drunk, yes. and he was in a bigot. but all those commentators on both sides were saying, well, the fact that he was drunk just proves the point, that he's really a bigot and anti-Semite, and he just wanted to get into Spielberg's movies, so therefore, he never said anything, or whatever it may be, but the other ones say, no, it was just a bad day of luck, he was having a bad day, and even his friends are Jewish, who did he have, a very good friend, Dean uh, Dean Devlin was his very good friend, and he said, you see, my best friends are Jewish, so therefore I can't be an anti-Semite. So, Gibson and others said, well, it was because of his alcohol, and that's nothing, or that's really what it is. <laughs> that's, what, that's what's something, very good. So there was a very big neuroscientist who argued, his name was Eagleman, and he said that they're both true. And he said, Where, who is the true Mel Gibson? Is he an anti-Semite, or is he just a nutcase? Which one was it? So, and over here he says, here you see text number 8A. Brains are like representative demo- uh, the, democracies. They're built of, of multiple overlapping experts who weigh in and compete over different choices. There's an ongoing conversation among different factions in your brain, each competing to control the single output channel of your behavior. When a hostess offers a party, here's a, the, offers a party with a choc- offers a chocolate cake, you find yourself on the horns of a dilemma. Some parts of your brain have evolved to crave the rich energy, source of sugar, and other parts care about the negative consequences such as your health of your heart. Part of you wants the cake, part of you tries mustard, it, to muster the fortitude to forgo it. The final vote of the parliament determines which party controls your actions. That is, whether you put your hand up or out. As the French essayist Michael de Montaigne put it, there is as much of a difference between us and ourselves as there is between us. And others. Now, the neuroscience goes on to say, neuroscientist says as follows, going back to Gibson's anti-Semitic incident, he looks at it the following way. text number eight B. Returning to Mel Gibson and his drunken tirade, we can ask whether is there such a thing as true colors? We have even seen the behavior that is an outcome of a battle amongst internal systems. To be clear, I'm not defending Gibson's despicable behavior, but I am saying that a team of rivals brain, can naturally harbor both racist and narcissist feelings. Alcohol is not a truth serum. Instead, it tends to tip the battle towards the sure term. Unreflect the faction, which has no more or less claim than the other faction to be a true one. So what he says over here, and I think this is a fascinating word, there is as much difference between us and ourselves as there is between us and others. Within ourselves, we're struggling, just like we struggle between us and understanding somebody else. So we're not saying that Mel Gibson had no hate. Hate is certainly there. The question is, is it not necessarily omnipresent? And sometimes it comes out, and sometimes you're able to hide it. Sometimes by doing something, as they used to say, there was a concept before, it was the concept of triggers, that certain things trigger different parts of our brain. Even when people go through trauma, they can put the trauma to the side of their mind and ultimately sometimes when they come to certain incidents, that all of a sudden triggers something that happened many, many years ago and they start saying things and behaving in a way that they never did before. So what we see over here is that the anti-Semite can uh, can be with us or against us. And the answer is he can be both there are times that they'll be with us and there are times that they'll be against us. Under certain conditions, the anti-Semitic, the anti-Semitic perspective of the individual will be hushed, clouded, and forgotten. And other times, it will come to the forefront. There's not one reason why people will behave one way or the other way. The question is, or as the poet Walt Whitman used to say, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradicted myself. <laughs> you contra- I am large, I contain multitudes. Every person has a bunch of ways in Jewish law and in Judaism we learn about the Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination the godly inclination so too in some type of way you can say it exists within every single person and this can explain why Rabbi Shimon why Jacob why Rabbi Yanai and why the people throughout the generations even though these anti-Semites were absolute anti-Semites why then were they going to them? why were they talking to them? was because they wanted to be able to capitalize maybe on that, maybe quiet genie that's not talking, that hovering, going beyond the big surface, and maybe allowing them to go beneath the surface and seeing some kindness in them. Sometimes they were successful, and sometimes the hater was so bad that there was nothing left them to be able to, be, to discover. So let's go back to our modern era To we started the story that we started with the planes. Today we live in a whole different era. Why? Because we live in a different era than our ancestors. We have a choice. Number one, we have a way to wage war against our opponents. Anybody says something today, you can have millions of memes already against a person, or it's social media, even before social media, you yeah, had the right to protest, the right to demonstrate, you know, everything that you were allowed to do. What were the options that the Jews had then? What was Rabbi Yosef Roshim's option if not to speak to Charles V, get expelled. You want to protest? Yeah, protest. They'll throw you, he'll kill you too. They're not going to do anything. Today we have that opportunity, so to speak, that we can so, um, do something, make noise, and make, so to speak, and arrange mass demonstrations and to be able to do those things. Because we live in these democracies, most Jews live in democracies and places that are freedom of speech. You know, there was once this Jewish guy who was living in Moscow and he applied for a visa to go to Israel. This was during communism. So the uh, KGB agent comes knocking on his door at 3 o'clock in the morning and says, Drew, you applied to move to Israel? He says, yeah. So he says, why did you go to here in Mother Russia? You have food eat." He says, yeah. He says, here in Mother Russia? Yeah, so what do you want to leave Russia for? He says, ah, I can't explain. And he says, and here in Russia, you have a place to live? He says, yeah, so why do you want to live? He says, no, you can't complain. So in here in Russia, you have works, I can't complain. And everything says, I can't complain. He so, says, so why do you want to move to Israel? He says, because there I can complain. <laughs> so what we have over here, the question is, because we have that opportunity to demonstrate, to protest and make all the noise, should we? Should we make the noise? Or, should we? Maybe use the methods that the Torah talks about. Now that we have these abilities. So let's go what happened. When the French president, Mr. Pompidou came to the United States in the 1970s, he was met with fierce demonstrations. Outside the embassy, in Manhattan, in Chicago, they lined the streets, thousands of people, demonstrated to the anti semitical acts of what he was doing. To the extent that this French president was so upset that President Nixon had to hurry to New York to, like, appease him. Text number 9. President Nixon made a hurry trip to New York yesterday to apologize to President Pompidou, who was angered by what he termed insults to himself and his wife during a pro-Israel demonstration touched off by his state visit to the United States. The French president has been arranged by a jostling that the members of his party received from demonstrators in Chicago whose actions were marked by boos and angry cries and by what he viewed as an acceptance of such hostile acts by the Chicago police. So unlike our ancestors, we can go to war. The question is, should we? But remember, Jacob looked at the option of war, but he put it to the side. What was his first option? Sending gifts. The Rebbe looks at it as follows and says, that the demonstrations, though they were well-intended, they were misguided. Text number 10A. The public protest against the president of France angered French officials. They blocked any lobbying efforts that the French Jews might have been able to make to prevent or at least reduce French assistance to the Arab countries that are hostile to Israel. The stated reason these protests was to demonstrate that America is a democratic country and that American Jews are not cowardly. This is a worthwhile objective when Jewish lives are not at risk. However, when Jews are threatened with the sale of many military jets to Libya, we have two options. We can organize public protests, or we can make every effort to either prevent or postpone the sale, reduce the number of jets sold, or at least prevail upon the French to send less effective planes. Such aims can only be achieved through quiet diplomacy the proof is that the agreement of this nature has nev- has been reached in the past. The Rebbe didn't clarify his position on what he meant by past agreements. But in a year later, the Rebbe explained as follows and said, Text number 10b. When Mr. Pompidou visited the United States, there were mass protests against him int- intended to intimidate France. These efforts backfired. It can now be said that despite the French embargo against selling arms to, Billig- to Belgrade, belligerence in the middle east the french president has allowed the sale of small arms light weapons to israel items that can be sold without attracting publicity however as a result of the demonstrations the approval for such sale was withdrawn after some time when there was no longer when he was no longer being disparaged he resumed dealing with jews behind closed doors and reinstituted the small arms sale He also arranged for the 300 Jews to be able to leave Egypt. All this was accomplished without demonstrations, without publicity. The Jewish media was warned against disclosing any of this, and we only know this from the non-Jewish press. The conclusion we must draw in this case is we do not influence anti-Semites by constantly yelling at them, you are an anti-Semite, you are a thief, you are a murderer. Rather, engage them in diplomatic conversation, although such individuals are well aware of what we think about them, they are nevertheless human beings and wish to behave like human beings. The Rebbe is giving an example of what we see very clearly worked and what did not work. Meaning, he says, when you have a person like Mr. Pompidou, he's coming to the America. He doesn't want America to view him as an anti-Semite. And when you're standing there, he says, you know what? If they really hate me, I'll do it. And he stopped giving those small arms to Israel, which he was doing under the table. Because every politician has a price even a hater but when you go beyond their persona so to speak you go beyond who they are and you label them something they're going to want to live up to that reputation because. Since
3: but isn't selling the
2: small arms behind everyone's back an anti-Semitic
0: no, he's selling it to Israel
2: I know, he's selling to Israel but not letting everybody know
0: but at the same time we have to look at the objective what does Israel need? let everybody know or they need the arms? That's what the Rebbe is saying. If it's a question that Jews' lives are in danger, then we have to go for the latter. That means to get the mission accomplished. If there's not a question, let's say we're in America, nothing's going to change because this congressman, well, let me just take a modern case, just for example. You take an Elon Omar that you have today. Nobody's going to get hurt by labeling Elon Omar an anti-Semite. She has a small ability of power, so to speak, of what she can do. She's one person out of 300 and whatever, 15 congresspeople. So her ability is to be able to influence the change. So she has to be called out as an anti-Semite. Should we also work back channel to change the way she believes? Yes. But at the same time, because of her statements, they have to be called out. But let's take another example. It's not brought in the book here, and we're going to bring another example in a moment about a congressman, even about a congressman who has seemingly has little influence. The Rebbe was against, just to give you an example, the Russian demonstrations for the Jews behind the Iron Curtain. And many Jews, in the, uh, in talking about it, in the big world of the, uh, what do you want to call them, the political world of the Jewish people that were, were very upset about the Rebbe. How come he's against the demonstrations? The Jews behind the Iron Curtain. And in private conversations and letters, the Rebbe couldn't say it in public for the reasons. The Rebbe says, I know what's going on behind the Iron Curtain because he had Shluchim behind the Iron Curtain. He knows the lives that are going through. He knows every single time there was a demonstration, another mikvah was closed, another shul was closed, another yeshiva was closed, to retaliate. When things were quiet, they left him and said, you don't bother us, we don't bother you. He says, I know the Russian mentality. You want to label me an anti-Semite? I'll show you, I'll fight you back. They even sent, to the extent they sent the chief rabbi of Moscow, the quote-unquote chief rabbi, to New York, to show that, look, we have freedom of religion, look, we even have a chief rabbi, and they went that he should go speak to all different places, and they had a translator with him, wherever he went. You know who that translator was? It's a KGB guy. He couldn't say anything. At One o'clock in the morning, he had a cat pick him up from his hotel, they brought him to the Rebbe's room, and he had an audience with the Rebbe, because that was the only time he was out with his KGB, and that's when they were able to pass information. The Rebbe knew what was going on, and therefore in this case, the Rebbe brought a clear case that before the demonstrations, the French were giving things to Israel, yes, under the table. And after the demonstrations, they stopped. Here's another case. Jesse Helms was a senator of North Carolina in 1972. For more than a decade, he consistently voted against the interests of Israel. For example, he voted against all foreign aid against Israel. In 1982, when Israel, after Israel invaded Lebanon, he suggested that the United States break off any relations with Israel. Many pro-Israel groups were all angry with him. They wanted to try to unseat him, get somebody else. In 1984, Chabad had an event in Washington, D.C., where to celebrate the fact that President Reagan and both houses of Congress designated the Rebbe's birthday for Education Day USA. One of the people that were there, of all these high-profile senators and congressmen that came to celebrate this occasion, was this Senator Jesse Helms. Harvard professor at the time, Alan Dershowitz, was a very pro-Israel fellow was very upset. How is it that Chabad can honor Jesse Helms, who's been an open, anti-Israel, anti-Semite? And racist. And a racist, okay. <laughs> Staunch anti-Israel. So the Rebbe responded to him and said, First of all, Chabad didn't honor him. He was one of the attendees that came at this event, like all the other politicians came. But then the Rebbe added a postscript to his letter. And he writes as follows. Text number 11. I trust you will agree that in regard to persons of influence, whether in Washington or elsewhere, the first objective should be to persuade and encourage such a person to use his influence in a positive way, in behalf of any and all good causes which are important to us. We should welcome every public appearance which lends public support to the cause, especially when there is a likelihood that it may be a forerunner of a similar pronouncement in the future. My experience with such people, though, I've never personally met the person that they're talking about, is Jesse Helms, has convinced me that politicians are generally motivated more by expediency than by conviction. In other words, their public pronouncement of various issues do not stem from categorical principles of religious imperatives. Hence, most of them, if not all, are subject to change in their positions depending on time, place, and other factors. I believe, therefore that the proper approach of such persons as a Jewish leader should not be rigid. As a rule, it does no good to engage in a cold war, which may often turn into a hot war, nor does it serve any useful purpose to brand anyone as an enemy or an anti-Semite. However, tempting as it is to do so, even if the person vehemently denies it, it can only be counterproductive. On the contrary, ways and means should be found to persuade such a person to make take favorable stance at least publicly we haven't too many friends and attaching labels will not gain us any instances abound where the approach advocated above produced good results there is surely no need to point out that your responsible jewish leaders consistently cultivated good public relations indeed even cordial relations with president carter and his predecessors Going back to President Roosevelt, regardless of their sometimes openly negative feelings towards Jews and Jewish causes, Roosevelt had 400 rabbis by his door and walked out the back door, refused to meet them, right? During World War II. But still in all, all rabbis at the time looked to cultivate, made a prayer from during the war and everything else to be able to find the good that was in him. Professor Dershowitz recounts the story and he adds a postscript to the story, which that sure enough, after he was honored, Senator Helms assumed a very high influential role on in the United States Foreign Relations Committee and became the strongest supporter for Israel afterwards. Not only that, so and not for many other Jewish causes, and he made like a complete 180 once he got that position. So obviously the Rebbe had enormous influence in persuading Jesse Helms on that, but even though he was sealed so to speak his values became were at first seemingly anti-Semitic, but because he was embraced, he gave him a little bit of honor and all of a sudden the person changed. And we can see now why he changed after the fact, so to speak, was because we didn't label him, we found, so to speak, a little bit of a good in him to be able to take that change. The important lesson over here is is to remain optimistic. We can get it's very easy for us to be able to throw taglines at people, call this, label people anti-Semite and do whatever it may be. But the more we are able to give a person and shower them with optimistic, that approach should be, of course, the first go-to way to be able to do it. Practically speaking, where does this leave us? The ultimate goal of Jewish history is ultimately that Mashiach should come. And when Mashiach comes, there'll be no more hatred. And Mashiach will come, will be the wolf lying with the lamb, as we mentioned. But the practical lesson that we have to learn over here is so important. And realize that this is relevant to every person, to every place, to any individual. And it's relevant to the individual as well. We are so quick to label people. We are so quick to be able to decide what people are. Not even anti-Semites, whether it's our neighbor, the person that doesn't get along with us. Oh, the person in the post office wasn't nice to me because I'm wearing a yarmulke. No, the person just had a bad day. You're not necessarily an anti-Semite. I remember when I moved here. In, uh, this is good, when I, so I opened up a non-for-profit, tried to open up bulk rate uh, mailings, in the local post office. You have to go to your local post office. And I walked inside, and when I walked in the first day, the woman that was in charge said, you can't open one up. What do you mean I can't open I'm a non-for-profit. I have the non-for-profit. I'm allowed to open up. You can't. What do you mean I can't? So I called up the business district office in Melville, they said, what well, the paperwork I needed, and I came and I showed her I have the paperwork. Reluctantly, she agreed, and she had to open it up because they called her up and said, I'm allowed to open it up. And because I got this, so to speak, the superior to force her to allow me, For the next year, any time I brought a mailing, if it was folded, it's supposed to be open. If it was open, it was supposed to be folded. If it was uh, to the right, it was supposed to be to the left. No matter what, she found a problem. It came Hanukkah the coming year. I went to Walmart, bought a $25 gift card, gave her a card. I said, thank you very much for your help. Never had a problem since. She had a bad day. She wasn't. And then afterwards, it, they, when they had questions how to do the bulk mail, they used to call me. You know, it's like the rabbi for the bulk mail. They didn't know how to do it there. <laughs> but uh, so the the bottom line is that was she an anti-Semite? She wasn't. She just was maybe a miserable uh, day. She wasn't going. Things weren't going her way. She had a back pain. I don't know what it was. But the bottom line was, it came out in different ways. But if I would have said that lady is an anti-Semite, start making a whole hate crime scene. Never would it have things worked out. So we always have to remember, regardless who the person is, whether it's a coworker or a person we meet, the message is that that guy is not necessarily an anti-Semite. We have many people that we can label, the guy down the block where he hunks when he goes by my house, he must be an anti-Semite. No, he's just an idiot. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're an anti-Semite. Or even if he isn't, if you go, be nice to him, he has no choice. You know, They used to say, kill him with kindness then they can't, They have to be nice And this is exactly what Jacob taught us. And there's another very important lesson that we also see is... Rabbi, didn't yes.
1: work in the
3: Holocaust. They went along with everything. In the
0: Holocaust, they, they, okay, as we said, there's Hitlers in every generation. There's Amalekites. There are people that want to kill us. I said it doesn't always work. Right. But step number one is that we have to try the lobbying case. Mm-hmm. We have accomplished much more. Let's think about this. Let's take the common day. APAC with their lobbying, has accomplished much more for Israel than the the JDL screaming every Jew at 22.
4: But but, but what about the old expression, the carrot and the stick? In other words, it seems to me that you can have certain people doing certain things and other people doing other things. And if you look at what I consider the greatest threat to Israel now it's Iran. And Iran is not a country that I think you could simply go behind closed doors and say, please stop hating us, please. And also, I would argue this, having come to the conclusion, of course, that, you know, powerlessness that the Jews experience through most of you, I think leads in some way to anti-Semitism. I think when you have, when you know someone who's weak and irresolute. I understand, maybe not in the religious sense, but in terms of their their power, there's a sort of dislike you get to that person. Even though it's irrational, even though you may say why the person doesn't hurt anybody, he's he's harmless. There's a certain dislike of the person in the human nature. I think the power that Israel and since '67 has uh, promulgated throughout the world has helped.
0: I agree with his, you on everything.
4: In 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 uh, reducing. Overt anti-Semitism it doesn't mean that people now don't hate Israel because uh, of, their, of their power. They do, but I do think that you know Roosevelt never bombed the tracks either. Correct. So uh, you know he never he never really lifted his hands. Uh, he never did anything. And not only he turned away the boat. That's right, to St. Louis. He turned. Yeah, St. Louis. Away. So, okay. And and also when you talk about the Russian thing, you have to remember there was the jackson van, I just looked it up. That's I guess the greatest of Google. In seventy four, the Congress embargoed Russia, and that and said that you know you have to allow immigration out of Russia, which also helped. So I think so, we could have the Rebbe.
0: Uh, no, no, I think the Rebbe says both. That's exactly what Jacob did, and this is my point. And I'm going to answer your point even stronger. I'll, what did I'll he say, talk, talk for the. Yeah, I'm saying he Rebbe, said the big carrot big and the stick. So I, exactly what Jacob did. I'm, don't get me wrong. I don't think we have to be pacifists. Don't get me wrong. We have to. Jacob did both. He sent gifts, and he also had, and he also prepared an army. I'll tell you even more, so you want to bring Israel, being strong makes us strong. Like, I'll just give you an example. In Israel, after 1967, the Arabs were petrified of the Israelis. Not only, one second, not only that, in Israel, during the time of Anachem Begin, Yitzchak Shamir, the Arabs were afraid. Why? Because Israel showed strength, we're not giving up anything. Any time historically, Israel was willing to give up land. After the Oslo of course, was the Intifada. Any time they did any type of thing that showed weakness, and this the Rebbe even yelled at the Shamir, and he told Shamir because he's so strong, he called him your Shamir, you like a warm. You're he says when you stand strong, that's when they back down. When you show that you're a weakness, you show you're wobbly. Exactly what you're saying. Yes, it stops over at anti-Semitism. I remember even as a kid. I think I told you this, though. I remember, we used to go on the train. And we even used to see it in ourselves. And we stared like with little shrimps, what we were. But we were still like, this tough guys. These kids didn't start up with us. And then we went through bad neighborhoods. Why? Because we in ourselves believed that we were strong. So I'm not saying we should be pacifists, God forbid. I believe that there has to be an APAC if you want to call them modern times. There has to be an APAC And there has to be a state of Israel who says we're not going to bend and buckle just because America told us to do something. And I would say AIPAC is quite... <laughs>
4: APEC, See, I, that's right. I don't, I APEC is quiet. They, well, I don't think I don't think they. I think they're very. They're uh,
0: diplomatic. well Let me say that.
4: Uh, well, they're not taking guns out. To get Correct. So away. it's a diplomatic approach. But, but they are voicing their. One hundred percent. candidates to support. One hundred percent, but they're diplomatic. Issuing papers against those who
0: don't. But they're not saying. They're not labeling people. They're not here to make demonstrations. They're using the diplomatic means that our government entails us to to be able to lobby for Jewish causes. The same thing is also you have the OU has a lobbyist and a good lobbyist. There's a many different Jewish causes, but the moment... L- let me put it this way. A politician can come out and say something which can have an impact on many Jewish people. Now, we can say that politician made a political bad move or we can call him an anti-Semite. The moment we call that politician for his political behavior. We call him an anti-Semite, we lost that politician completely. That's my point. Whether you like his decisions or you don't like his decisions, the moment you call him a Hitler, an anti-Semite, a this, a that, or the other, you're not going to get anything from that person anymore. You close the door. The moment you can say, I don't like his policies, we have to demand that the policies change, and we look to see the human part of him, you can gain something. Because if you imagine I call you an anti-Semite, are you going to invite me for a meeting? No. No. So the concept is over here is that we have to have strength. God forbid we have to be strong. There's no here that we're saying we shouldn't be strong. The question is, how is your strength portrayed? Your strength, your strength has to be portrayed, number one, A, diplomatically, and B, also at the same time, to know that you're always ready to go to war. Israel has to have the best army, but at the same time they have to also be diplomatic.
4: I'll just say one last thing, and that is that the other way you keep people from having power in this country, if you're successful, is to call them anti-Semites, and then make sure they lose all the election. Because, because any time, like ja- I think his name was Jackson, if right, he calls Town or something, and he never could become mayor, he never could become president, and if you... So, so the- Unfortunately,
0: there's too many sympathizers today that will vote yeah. for a person that you say that.
4: Look at her, Elon yeah. Omer, She
0: got the re Yeah, but you yeah. know she got it. That's her own. Mean, the whole district
4: She's is
0: somebody- Okay, so that's, that's what I'm saying. I so mean, they I mean, have yeah, the same thing. In Minnesota, what Why you, you were in a different country. The bottom line is, most importantly, as we went going back to our first, just to bring everything together, going back to our first step is the way how do we avoid anti-Semites to begin with outsmarting anti-Semitism take us to how do we avoid anti-Semites at the beginning is to education. One of the biggest dilemmas that we have in the issues today is that when we have education we're teaching more sciences, as so to speak, knowledge instead of behaviors. And when we teach behaviors and we teach that the character of a person should be able to change, the character of a person is something who we have to develop, then automatically avoid from the beginning, from the inception, so to speak, anti-Semites. With this we have a little... Oh, that's it. Here. So, we don't put our trust in our friends. We place our trust in God, and we do the best to be able to ensure a positive society.
3: Negative thoughts, actions, and speech create negative energy. Conversely, positive thoughts, actions, and speech create positive energy. And that's what led with an idea that has its genesis in South Africa, to the idea of
0: art just... acts of random kind They're of, of the table, I guess. kind of shape, a little
3: bit, more or less, if you use your imagination, like Noah's Ark. And the idea is, you take some change, you place it in here, and when it's filled up, we pass it along to someone who's less fortunate. It isn't just the money collected, it's the thought and the feeling that it represents. I went to a public school. I studied math and physics, and we studied how to
2: solve math problems. I didn't have to solve my own problems. Rabbi David Aaron, a Jerusalem-based educator, reflects on his personal experience. The real problems of life is what education should be
3: focusing on. It's essentially about building people, and only
4: great people will do great things. It
1: is my distinct honor. A pleasure to welcome
4: the 40th President of the United States, Ronald
2: Wilson Reagan. Mr. President. On March 1, 1981, then President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, delivered a luncheon address at the Washington Hilton. He left the hotel at 2.27 p.m. But as he headed to his limousine, a would-be assassin opened fire. Reagan was critically wounded and the nation collectively gasped in horror. The president survived. And at a public gathering two weeks later, the Lubavitcher Rebbe insisted that the instructive lesson of the assassination attempt must similarly survive. The Rebbe saw the event as a wake-up call for the nation to upgrade its approach to education.
3: It is very safe in use the I was not getting my safe after
4: them he Neither me.
3: of them, And I was me not As I to the best can learn as
2: As much as we want to graduate mathematicians and scientists, we also want to graduate decent human beings. Dr. Rona Novik, Dean of the Israeli Graduate School of Jewish Education and Administration, has given ample thought to this problem. Very few educators would invite a charismatic speaker or have a big assembly program to create readers. They would understand that the way that we build reading skills is piece by piece and building block by building block. We start in kindergarten, in first grade, and we keep building on it. Well, we need to look at character education and social-emotional learning in exactly
1: the same way. Judaism teaches us that it's important to give charity every day. And the more you give charity, the, that muscle of kindness within you gets stronger and stronger. Rabbi Lady Greenberg
2: and his wife Shana are emissaries of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in El Paso,
1: Texas. We embarked on a campaign to bring this message of daily giving to every single child in El Paso. And so we brought to El Paso The ARC campaign. All the children in the school received one of these boxes, and they were told that the purpose of this box is to be taken home and filled every day. If they have extra coins, they should ask their parents for some money. After a month of collecting money, their class would nominate charities that should receive their combined money. And the winning charity would receive the combined monies that they have collected throughout that month. The art project, giving money every day, takes acts of random kindness and turns them into acts of routine kindness.
2: Raising a generation of individuals empowered with a sense of purpose and trained to pursue acts of kindness is an important factor in curing and preventing numerous social ills, including the reduction of hate and bigotry, along with anti-Semitism. The more
1: we give, the more we respect we respect human life, we respect property, the more dignity we have for ourselves and for society. If we want to stop anti Semitism. We have to stop hatred. And you know, we have the opportunity to nip hatred in the bud by increasing in acts of goodness and kindness and inspiring and encouraging all of humanity to do so. Every single person should give charity every day. And hatred will be a thing of the past the call
2: of the hour more necessary than ever is for each of us to adopt a charity box for regular daily (laughs) contributions and to encourage all around us family and friends jew and non-jew to act similarly actively demonstrate encourage and promote kindness sympathy and altruistic care if a little illumination eliminates a lot of darkness think of what a rapidly swelling force of systematic goodness can achieve for our communities and ultimately for humanity it's time to turn up the light
0: these were just like i had these years ago and that they had it on the video so out so you can see they were actually like that's this is from south africa little cute arcs it's called Change the world for goodness. It's called Ark for Act of Random Kindness. And the point was that the kids can give it to any charity they want. So as we know, Sumer will reach a time when Mashiach will come. That Esav will be marching with 400 men and Esav's kiss will be genuine and enduring. As it says that even when Mashiach will come, then Esav will come to recognize in the attitudes of Jews, non-Jews, everybody will be together. But until then, as we can see in figure 4.3 on page 139, we have our job cut out for us. We have some takeaways from today's courses. Number one, we'll remain calm. We will trust in God and upgrade our connection with him. We will create natural means through which God can provide our security. We will not internalize anti-Semitism by altering our Jewish heritage. We'll be open about our Jewish identity, benefiting Jews and fostering diversity. We'll be sharing awareness of God's mission for all humanity and thereby helping individuals avoid experience and inner void. We will thank God for the divine gift of the Holy Land and seek to strengthen its security and prosperity. And we'll avoid labels and public shaming. Instead, we'll work with whomever we can to ensure beneficial results for the Jewish people. But there's one last thing. This whole lesson was about anti-Semites. That we interact with or that we don't, or Jew haters. The question is, how do we relate to those in the Jewish community? We should be taking another look at that as well. You may be wondering, well, of course, it's good for people to get along, and it's wonderful if we all got along. But when we talk about anti Semitism, the reason why anti Semitism exists, and going back to what Shlomo, what Sherman mentioned, when we are strong, then it stops anti Semitism. If you look back when Haman came with his case to Achashverosh, he said as follows Text number 12a. Haman told King Achashverosh, There is one nation that is scattered and dispersed amongst the nations of the world, throughout all the countries of your empire. What does he first say? What's he saying? They're scattered. What does it mean that they're scattered? That the very fact that they are scattered, they're not getting along, that's why they're vulnerable for anti-Semitism. What brings us to anti-Semitism is the very fact that Haman is saying, why can I, God forbid, annihilate the Jew? Is because they're not together. The problem is that they don't listen to their leaders. They're not able to develop a cohesive strategy. They're not talking to each other. So if Jews are fighting amongst each other, then we can get rid of them. What was Haman saying? There's a reason why they're vulnerable. Text number 12b. Haman claimed there's one nation that is scattered and dispersed. He was referring to the fact that the Jews were internally divided. He argued that they would be unable to defend themselves because of this discordant people cannot develop a cohesive strategy nor will they pay heed to their leaders. Subsequently, when Jews repented, there was unity amongst them and they gathered in their cities with mutual love. We therefore send packages of food to one another on Purim to demonstrate that this mutual love is a cause of deliverance. What happens to the next step? What does Esther tell Mordechai? What are you supposed to do? Go and gather the Jewish people. Bring them together. Make sure that they get along. Because once we get along... That's the way we can redevelop and we can fight against anti-Semitism. We, how do we celebrate Purim? By giving gifts to another person, showing an act of unity, of taking care of one another. As we say it in the sh- before, we say the Shema. We say, Barcheinu Avinu kulanu <laughs> k'echa, that God, our Father, bless us as one. When do we have God's blessings? When we are together as one. Haman hey, come along, tells the Jewish, tells Ahasuerus, why can I attack the Jews? Because they don't get along. What does Esther say? What's the antidote to that? Make sure you get along. When you all get along, then nothing can take you down. We, the Jewish people, we can protect ourselves against anti-Semitism by standing for one another, by being with one another. And that's why it's so important that the main message that we get of this entire course, outsmarting anti-Semitism, how do we do it? Is by standing together as one. Our people have free choice. They person can decide where they want to do, what they want to do. But as we said before, when we resolve to reach out to every Jew, and not just a Jew who we agree with, but even a Jew who we disagree with, maybe if it's, even if it's on important issues, whether it's politics, Israel, Judaism, whatever it may be, reaching out with love to another Jew, that will bring about an absolute unity and togetherness, and with that, we will protect ourselves and the world from any type of anti-Semitism or any type of hatred that exists. And we'll be able to collaborate across the entire jewel spectrum, bringing God's blessings and protection and goodness on us. Amen. 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 Here's just a review and just, uh, here we go.
3: Lesson four, change of heart. One, the Torah's narrative of Jacob and Esau suggests that by employing the right words and deeds, we can influence those we deem to be against us.
2: Accordingly, the 2nd century sage rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai
3: traveled to Rome to win concessions for the benefit of the Jewish community, establishing a model followed by countless others, most famously the European court Jews of the early modern period. Two, Jews did not feel inferior while conducting diplomatic missions. They knew that the Jewish future depended on God, and that their job was to generate a garment behind which God could conceal his blessings. A firm belief that they were in God's hands inspired in them a sense of pride. 3. According to modern neuroscience, brains are built of multiple parts that weigh in concerning different choices each part competing to control the single output channel of behavior. This explains why an individual with Jewish friends can nevertheless carry out a drunken tirade against Jews. Conversely, it explains why Jews can gain assistance from unlikely sources. 4. Today, we are finally able to campaign publicly against those who oppose us. However, It is often counterproductive to publicly brand individuals as enemies or anti-Semites. Slow to shame and quick to engage is still an effective route. Five, we must do everything possible to condition society to bring out the best in people rather than their more sinister elements. In the sphere of education, this means promoting an approach that is not restricted to acquiring information includes proper character traits, self-discipline, and the awareness that all humans are created to actively generate goodness in their environments. 6. Living in harmony with our fellow Jews enables us to better collaborate to ward off threats and promote our interests. Jewish mysticism teaches that God responds positively to Jewish unity, providing overt blessings of protection and goodness.
0: And coming up next... Coming to you in February, same place. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I hope you all had a wonderful time. And may we not know of any anti-Semitism anymore.